It's just a ghost story now. Twenty-nine men now laying at the bottom of Lake Superior. It's a ghost story, but a fairly recent one. The Edmund Fitzgerald was found a little after she foundered in a storm in 1975, and we always hear that Lake Superior won't give up her dead. Even in his song, Gordon Lightfoot refers to the lake's ice-water mansions, and the temperatures are prime for the preservation of a body. Lake Superior certainly preserved the Fitzgerald structure as it lay at the bottom of the lake. It also protects her crew. As curiosity gets the better of many a man, both the governments of Canada and the United States work to protect the graveyard. But the ghost story lingers. Because when it comes to the Fitz, we still don't know exactly what took her down, and those who lost family members on board, many of them are still living. Lots of questions, but not a lot of answers. This is God's Favorites, a history podcast, and let's wrap up Shipwreck Summer with the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. in the late 1950s and named after the president of the Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, the SS Edmund Fitzgerald Wood founder in November of 1975. The tragedy and legend persist, partly because Gordon Lightfoot gave us one heck of a modern day sea shanty of her life. One which I'm sure you've probably heard, but I can't use it on the podcast because those licensing fees are expensive. So if you want to hear it, you'll just have to listen to it outside of class. On the morning of November 9, 1975, the Edmund Fitzgerald's first mate, Jack McCarthy, was supervising the opening and closing of hatch covers. The Fitz was known for her speed in this world of Lake Superior shipping, and the first mate was trying to get a move on. At that time, it was looking as though the crew might get paid overtime, and as the story goes, the captain himself was not okay with that. So they worked as fast as they could to get her up and running. The sealing of the hatches helped protect the structure of the ship. If those were loose, it could be catastrophic. They were near Detroit, Michigan at this time to pick up cargo from Great Lakes Still. McCarthy would fasten the hatches and the crew would move on to their next stop. There had been a previous issue in which a hatch had not been fully closed and it damaged the cover a bit but the crew seemed to be absolutely aware of the life-or-death nature of what happened if they didn't close all the hatches. They were a crew of formidable old salts. The other mission critical here was the assurance that the cargo's weight had been properly distributed. Fitz had 21 cargo holds and was carrying over 26,000 tons of those tassinite iron ore pellets when she went under. Any faulty distribution there and, well things could get terrible rapidly. Jack McCarthy is remembered as an all-over good guy, as the other sailors and dock workers recall. He was working his way to retirement, and it was getting a bit closer every single day. His father, like many men, headed to the superior area where there was a booming need for industry, still automotive and, of course, others. He had almost left the sea for good once when he accidentally ran the Ben E. Tate aground. It cost over $200,000 to repair it, but he eventually made his way back despite his embarrassment. And on this day, everyone knew a November storm was coming through. 
As they piled on the second load, they figured they had enough time to make another run before the storm hit. One more run, and then it would be time to go home. Captain Ernest McSorley would likely check in on his wife at the end of the day, and perhaps one day he'd be able to retire. She had suffered a stroke, and he hoped to make that retirement happen sooner rather than later, so he could take care of her. If he was concerned about the forecast, he didn't seem to show it. The National Weather Service radioed ship traffic of the dangerous storm coming in with wind gusts of 35 to 50 miles per hour. The crew of the Wilfred Sykes a vessel loading near the Edmund Fitzgerald decided to play it safe and stick to a route near shorelines as the storm passed through. As that ship drifted, they heard the crew of the Edmund Fitzgerald chatting over the radio, with Captain McSorley sticking with his normal route. That call would be his undoing. In the hours leading up to the sinking, another ship, the Anderson, remained in touch over radio as the storm approached. The Anderson's captain, Bernie Cooper, made the decision for the time being to stick on its intended route. The gales, he would later explain, weren't any stronger or more out of the ordinary than most November storms. The important thing was to monitor three things. Wind speed, duration, and fetch. The winds determine the size of the waves and at which point it should be called, if at all. Toward the end of the evening of November 10th, the Anderson and Fitzgerald parted ways a bit. McSorley's crew was likely just sitting below deck, smoking cigarettes and talking with their shipmates. There was no sign of panic anywhere. Cooper, the Anderson's captain, noted that everything seemed to be business as usual. There was no sign of panic when the Anderson spoke with the Fitzgerald, which I think may be the most comforting thing in this story. A storm like this probably felt like any other blustery November gale. It is quite a normal phenomenon around Lake Superior and the states that border it. However, the meteorologists at the National Weather Service were becoming more and more concerned as the storm, currently situated over Wisconsin, caused pressure to rapidly drop. Any vessel in its path would be experiencing large and violent waves. It wasn't just sea spray wetting the decks, it was large amounts of water as the stern would dip and take it on. Visibility was only around two to four miles, and it was dangerous. Feeling some concern, Bernie Cooper of the Anderson radioed McSorley on the fits, and they talked over a change in the course. Perhaps they needed to move out of the way of the storm, but McSorley decided against it. He had been through much, much worse. Stay the course, he likely thought. We'll be fine. But this storm got worse. Choppy radio communication proved another impediment, and then around 5 p.m., McSorley could be heard telling everyone on board to stay below deck. The Anderson suggested they find safety in Whitefish Bay, but it was too hard to see where they were headed. A few moments later, McSorley could be heard talking again, but the words weren't clear. The United States Coast Guard was trying to help them navigate in the gale. Over the radio, McSorley was heard saying, I've got a bad list. But all those who heard McSorley say he was calm, they directed him to an island about 10 miles ahead of where he was. Bernie Cooper said that a lot of times, even if they were frightened of a storm, they tried to keep it together so they wouldn't be made a mockery of by other sailors. McSorley began inquiring about the locations of ships around him because he didn't want to run into one on accident. 
Frankly, a collision in this storm was the last thing anyone needed at this moment. All the fears were being downplayed as they worked to keep pushing through dangerous waves. And then one final message came. It was from a ship asking how the Fitz was faring with their problems. McSorley remained calm and added, We are holding our own. That was at 7.10 p.m. on November 10, 1975. It would be the last communication from the Edmund Fitzgerald. I'm sorry to tell you that we don't know what occurred next other than the culmination of all the present circumstances happening at once. The Edmund Fitzgerald sank. But what exactly went wrong is pure speculation. Bernie Cooper immediately began reaching out to whoever he could to alert them of the disappearance of the Fitz off radar. Around 9 p.m., the Anderson turned around and began looking through the area as the storm calmed itself. They found a breeze, but no sign of the ship or her crew. All 29 men had perished. The United States Coast Guard joined the fray and conducted a search of the area. It took four days and a special detector for them to locate a magnetic anomaly. Some months later, a Navy recovery vehicle would take a camera down into the lake to snap a few photos of the stern, where the words Edmund Fitzgerald were written. She was badly beaten up. The sheer amount of damage to the structure showed an abrupt end, which might be comforting for a lot of people. They hadn't even had the time to call out for help. The ship broke in two, although it is unclear if the ship broke in the waves or if she hit the bottom at a high rate of speed and that caused the split. The Coast Guard, however, came up with the following primary factors that caused the end of the Edmund Fitzgerald. The ship sat low in water, and because of that, she would have been hit with more waves and taken on more water than any other ship. Even though the first mate was incredibly responsible and was checking on those hatches, it is sadly very likely that those hatches were loose, and that allowed water to flood the cargo hold. There was also talk that it was possible that the ship ran aground at some point, and that caused damage to the hull that allowed flooding of the ship to take it down. When it comes to the Edmund Fitzgerald, we have a lot of assumptions, and they make sense, but whatever grabbed her took her very quickly. The mighty Fitz's legacy far outshines who she was in life. She even has her own anthem thanks to Gordon Lightfoot. But she is still a very, very recent loss, with some family members still alive. Some of those family members would go on to file lawsuits against Northwestern Mutual and its operators. And much like we see with the Titanic over and over again, the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald did cause subsequent changes to safety regulations at the time. This includes outfitting ships with survival suits that have been made for each crew member and they have lights and life jackets attached. Beacons are now installed on all Great Lake vessels the United States Coast Guard now inspects hatches and vents, making sure that they are on tightly. And new navigational charts were distributed to all ships on the Great Lakes. At a ceremony in 1995 at the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum, a diver removed her bell, and it was presented to family members of the crew. It rang 30 times, once for each member of the crew, and a final time in honor of those sailors that never made it home.
we are finishing up shipwreck summer over here on God's Favorites of History podcast, and we just survived a hurricane down here in Florida, so yikes. It seems very appropriate, doesn't it? Thanks to everyone who donates to our Patreon. We're working on a collaborative episode with a couple other podcast people and a couple other people from TikTok who do history as well. I'm excited about some of the people we are collaborating with, so stay tuned for that. That's going to be a lot of fun. And yeah, I, I, I knew all about the Edmund Fitzgerald, but I had no clue there was not that much information on what actually happened out there. Lake Superior is amazing. My mother is from Detroit, so this was a very, very fun story to do. Thank you to everyone who donates to our Patreon page. You're helping us get behind paywalls, buy books for streaming and music costs. It ain't cheap. And now you know why we couldn't have Gordon Lightfoot's song in this episode. <laughs> Our sources today are brief. We have the story of the Edmund Fitzgerald from the National Weather Service talking about the storm and the subsequent repairs that were made. And then the only book I think you need to have about this wreck, Mighty Fitz by Michael Shoemaker. As always, support the authors we use on this show. We couldn't do it without them. And as always, if you want to come hang out over on History Talk, you can find me at Melissa Fairlady. A couple of us are working on a collaborative episode for the finale, the big finale of Shipwreck Summer, so we hope you will join us then. And as always, see you next time, friends.